All right, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 10 this morning, Revelation chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'm just curious, do we have any, any doctors in the house this morning? We're, we're not having a medical emergency right now. I'm just curious, any doctors? Okay. Yeah, seen, we always have uh, a few doctors in here, by which I do mean uh, MDs, because my kids always remind me, Dad, you're a doctor, but you can't help anyone. Because, you know, you don't have a prescription pad or whatever. So, okay, medical doctors, I'm going to put you on the spot for just a moment. Uh, I'm just curious. For you who are medical doctors, do you like going to the doctor? (laughs) Okay. You don't actually have to call it out. I'm just really trying to create one of those awkward moments. And I I won't speak for you. I will just speak for myself. I love my, my doctors. Uh, I don't like to see my doctors. I mean, I like to see them if I go have coffee with them or have lunch with them, but I don't want to go to the doctor's office because if I go to the doctor's office, it means something is likely wrong, and I don't want to be there, but I, I need my doctors, right? I love my doctors because I also need my doctors. I need them uh, to need them to tell me truth, but it's usually a truth that I don't want to hear. So it's, it's, it's a message in a sense that's really bittersweet. So that's really similar to what happens uh, when a prophet shows up. If you look in the Bible, when a prophet shows up, something's wrong, something's broken. You don't want to see a prophet show up at your door because they have a message to deliver, and it's, it's truth, and you need to hear it, but it's a hard message. It's a difficult message. It's bittersweet, so it's a message of judgment, but also a message of deliverance. Uh, judgment is the bitter Deliverance is the sweet, and the beautiful thing is that the sweet always is more powerful than the bitter. The deliverance is more powerful than the, than the judgment for the people who listen and respond. But what's interesting to me is uh, I can't find anywhere in Scripture where there were uh, any kids who, as they were growing up, said to themselves, boy, I want to be a prophet, right? Because it's a hard job. In fact, what you see frequently is the prophet doesn't want the job. They say, God, anyone but me. Moses said, God, anyone but me. Send whoever you want. God said, I want to send you. And Moses said, I can't. I can't even talk. What are you doing right now, Moses? You, you, you can do this because I called you to this. Or Jeremiah, I'm way too young. Don't say you're too young. Everywhere I send you, you will go. All that I command you, you will speak. I will be with you. I will sustain you. I will carry you as you carry my message. I remember when um, Tristy was like 8.9 months pregnant, right? I mean, we were right there, right there, about to, to uh, deliver our son, Benjamin. And uh, my friend, Mike Gentry, asked me a question. And his kids were a little bit further along, right? They were late teens. I think they were both in college or just out of college. And he said, he said Brian, are, are you ready? Are you ready for this? And I said, you know, Mike, you know, I, I think we are. I've painted the room. I put the crib together. The chair is there. We've got di- diapers stacked and clothes are in the drawers. I said, you know, I think we're ready. And he said, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not ready, but it's okay. You'll be okay. Because this is, this is the next stage in God's calling on your life. And he will guide you. He will direct you. He will sustain you. So Revelation 10 and 11, what happens is John has delivered uh, more revelation to give to us. And it's, it's a difficult message. It's a challenging message. It's, it's hard truth. It's bitter and it's sweet. And what I want us to do as we look at this message is to uh, uh, personalize it. Because um, maybe you've noticed in the scripture, uh, we also are called to be God's messengers. Maybe specifically you're not called to be a prophet, but you are called to be God's 
messenger. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus was departing, these are his last words, and he says, this is what I want you to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is my strategy. You're going to carry my message. And so as we look at uh, this message and the messengers who carry it, I think there's some really important lessons uh, for us to take into uh, ourselves. So to put us in context again, right, we are now in the church age. The next thing we think will happen is that the church will be raptured, that is taken up out of the earth, and the tribulation will begin, we think, shortly after that. It will begin with a covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel. That will mark the beginning of the tribulation period, seven years of difficult times on the earth that mark Daniel's 70th period of seven years. And what happens during those seven years is just these unfolding and progressively intense and accelerating judgments that fall on the earth. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. The seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls, and they come with increasing intensity on the earth. And where we are right now in our study is we're in a pause, we're in an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Okay, that's where we are. We're between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. So I want you to read with me, beginning chapter 10 and verse 1. John writes, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right hand his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. So first lesson uh, for us to, to remember, to absorb, to learn is that God's message is bittersweet. God's message is bittersweet. So as chapter 10 opens up, we encounter another angel. Uh, And this time, it's a really big angel, a really strong angel with a really little scroll, right? The angel in chapter 5 was a smaller angel with a bigger scroll. The bigger scroll was the entire plan that God has for reestablishing his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his dominion over all of the earth and bringing blessing to earth, fulfilling all of his promises that he made to Israel and through Israel to all of the nations. That's the big idea. That's the big plan. Now, this angel shows up, and he's got a smaller scroll. He's got a a portion of the plan, a section of what God is going to do. Specifically, what we're going to see is he's going to focus on what God is doing in Jerusalem and with and for the Jewish people. Now, notice a few things about this description. John says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, 
And the rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Some have said, you know, based on that description, maybe that's Jesus. I don't think so, because throughout the book of Revelation, angels are called angels. Jesus is never called an angel. But this is an angel who is absolutely brilliant and beautiful and glorious because he's been in the presence of God. And in fact, a lot of times when people see angels who have just been in the presence of God, they, they want to hit the deck, they want to fall on their feet, face, because these angels are stunningly glorious. This angel is, he's large, he's strong, he's powerful. There is a rainbow around him symbolizing God's faithfulness to deliver even after judgment, that God will provide a way of escape. Notice also he's got one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. He came from heaven. That is, God is showing that he exercises authority over all of the realms, over heaven, over earth, over the sea. And this plan that he's about to unfold, is, it's authoritative. And as John is uh, laying out this revelation and the end is drawing closer and closer and closer, what this section does is it, it recommissions John and it reminds him that the sacrifices even that he is making are worthwhile. Notice what he says in verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, granted, this is, this is, this kind of, this is an odd image, right? He says, I want you to take the scroll, and I want you to eat it, right? It's like, show up to accounting class, so you want to learn about assets and liabilities? Here, eat this, right? I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, but it's a metaphor, and it's not an uncommon metaphor. Let me take you back to the book of uh, Ezekiel. The Lord said to Ezekiel, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. Then moving forward to verse 10, moreover, he said to me, son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them, and tell them whether they will listen or not, thus says the Lord. Because the prophet's message is bitter and it's sweet. It's a message of judgment, but it's also a message of deliverance. So you take it into your mouth, John. You take it into your mouth, Ezekiel. The same image was given to Jeremiah. It's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. Why? Because it's judgment, but it's also deliverance. And the sweet is greater than the bitter. And that is the message of the gospel. It's sweet, but it's also bitter. So if I can return to our, our metaphor of uh, the medical community, uh, this is not uncommon. Men my age, you show up at your doctor's office and he does blood work and he says to you, here's, here's the bad news, Brian. The bad news is uh, your cholesterol is just going crazy and you're probably going to have a heart attack and die if you don't change some things, right? That's the bad news. And I say, you know what, I'm never coming back. No, no I don't say that. No, I, I'm, I need to be here. I love my doctors and I need to hear the hard truth you're saying. So he tells me the truth. If you don't bring your cholesterol down, you're going to have a heart attack and die. You're not going to last. But here's the good news. We can bring it down. We can bring your cholesterol down. We can restore health to your heart. Now, here's the bad news. Your wife sold the flat screen TV. 
and she got you a gym membership and she canceled your Fuego's queso card. You're done, right? You're done, done. But the good news is you're going to live a long life. It's good news and it's bad news. It's judgment, but it's deliverance. And so what we see throughout the book of Revelation, throughout all of Scripture, is that when God sends a message of judgment, he always sends a message also of deliverance. Now, listen to Paul. He, He uses a slightly different metaphor. It's not a metaphor of tasting. It's a metaphor of smell. 2 Corinthians 15, he says, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma of death from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? We are not responsible for the response. But we are responsible to carry the message. And we need courage to carry the message because it is a message that's hard to hear. It's a message people don't want to hear. You're, you're sick and you're, you're going to die if things don't change. It's a message of life and death. Will you respond positively? Paul says, you know, we are a fragrance of Christ. And some respond to that same fragrance and they, 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 re, they reject it and they move away. In fact, that's what you see uh, in, in the book of Revelation earlier in chapter 6. Even though they know that this is God that's bringing judgment and he has all power and all authority over all the earth, they push back. But then others see in this judgment rightly that they're responsible for the judgment that's coming upon them and they turn to God for rescue, for deliverance, for salvation. Paul says to the other, we are an aroma from life to life, but we have to be courageous, right? Sometimes it's easier to sit on the plane and share the gospel than with a friend that you've known a long time or a family member because we need courage, How are they going to respond? What are they going to think about me? Are they going to think less of me? Is it going to hurt the relationship? Is it going to damage things? And we need courage. And I take courage from the fact that even the Apostle Paul said, he said, what I want you churches to pray for me is that I would not be afraid. That that I would be bold and that I would be clear in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the gospel. It's good news and it's bad news and then it's good news. It's good news. God loved you and he created you for himself. He created you specially so that you could have a relationship with him. That's what he designed you for. Bad news is uh, you're broken. But there, there are things about you that are in rebellion against God. God calls those in the Bible sin. That creates a separation in the relationship. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus died to remove that separation. And all that you have to do is say, yes, God, thank you. That's the gospel message. I just did that in 15 seconds. And friends, we've got to have the courage and the boldness, even though the message is bittersweet, to get to the gospel message with our friends and with our family. That's the first message that we need to remember. God's message, God's gospel, it's bitter, but it's sweet, and the sweet overcomes the bitter. Second, God's message cannot be silenced. God's message cannot be silenced. Chapter 10, verse 11. They said to me, you must prophesy again. Concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth, 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified, that is Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because of the two prophets who tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God will come, came back into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. In that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed. In the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, what's happening here? I want you to read with me again chapter 10 and verse 11. It says, They said to me, You must prophesy again, John, concerning many peoples and nations and tongues. Uh, circle that verse. I personally think that this is one of the literary keys to the book of Revelation. John is told, What I want you to do is I want you to prophesy again. So, remember where we are. We are between the sixth trumpet, and the seventh trumpet. There's a pause, there's an interlude. The sixth trumpet has sounded, the seventh trumpet hasn't happened yet. And so what I think that is, is happening here is John's being given some details to fill in the gaps. Prophesy again, John, that is, go back to the beginning of the tribulation period, and I want you to fill some things in. So while God is bringing judgment upon all of the earth, what's happening in Jerusalem? As God is bringing judgment upon the nations, what's happening with the Jews? So, John, I want you to go back and prophesy. I want you to go back to the beginning of the tribulation, and I want, to, I want you to fill in these details about what God is doing in the city of Jerusalem. So then you'll notice by the time we get to chapter 11, verse 14, it says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly, and then the seventh trumpet sounds. Right? So, the second woe is the sixth trumpet. He says, now the sixth trumpet is done, right? So we've gotten all the way up to the sixth trumpet. We have a pause or an interlude. John is told, go back. As the nations are coming under judgment, go back and fill in what's happening in Jerusalem. He fills in what's happening in Jerusalem, and then we're back to the narrative. The sequence begins again, and we're ready for the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the second half of the tribulation period. So... What is happening in Jerusalem as the nations are experiencing the seal judgments and the first six trumpet judgments? What's happening in Jerusalem? Chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city, for 42 months. So what's remarkable here in chapter 11, verse 1, is there is a temple. Is there a temple in Jerusalem today? There is not. Was there a temple in John's day? 
There was not. John wrote in AD 90, AD 70, that last temple that Herod had constructed was destroyed by Titus. Completely destroyed. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem since that point in time. In John's vision, there's a temple. John's told, go measure the temple. (laughs) How is it that there is a restored temple in Jerusalem? Well, remember, what marks the beginning of the tribulation period? Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel, and he restores sacrifice. Daniel 9, verse 27. And he, that is, the Antichrist, which means the one who's against the Messiah, but also the one who is another Messiah, right? The false Messiah, and we'll talk more about him later. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So what marks the beginning of Daniel's 70th period of seven years is the covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel that somehow allows them to reconstruct their temple and begin sacrificing again. So chapter 11, verse 1, we're at the, I believe, not everyone agrees, but I believe we're at the beginning of the tribulation period. The Antichrist has made the covenant. Sacrifices have begun again. And in the midst of those sacrifices, what is God doing? What is God doing? Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So how long is 42 months? Quick math, three and a half years. 1,260 days. If you use the lunar calendar, which the Jews use, that is three and a half years, right? So for three and a half years, these prophets are in Jerusalem, and they are prophesying. They're prophesying to Israel. And what are they announcing? Well, I think they're probably doing a sermon that was a lot like Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. (laughs) They're saying, look, you rejected God's Messiah. Consequently, judgment is going to come upon you. But all that you have to do is ask forgiveness for that sin of rejecting Jesus and turn to him and believe in him that he's Messiah. So they're announcing a bittersweet message. It's a message of judgment, but it's also a message of deliverance. For three and a half years, they're prophesying. Now, who are these two? Well, some people say, you know, that, maybe that's Moses and Elijah, right? They're the ones who showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here they are again. Uh, I, no one knows who they are. I don't think they're Moses and Elijah, literally. Because remember, uh, when John the Baptist came, we're told that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi, but he wasn't, John, he wasn't Elijah. He was John the Baptist. And I think what you have here is two prophets who come and they behave a lot like Moses and Elijah. Remember, Elijah was the one who was able to call down fire from heaven. He prayed and it didn't rain on the earth for three and a half years and no rain, right? Moses was the one who announced the plagues that came upon Egypt. So notice what it says here. Uh, These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord, the God of all of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. The point being, as long as God wants these two to deliver the message, it cannot be stopped. Right? It, cannot, it cannot be silenced. They have, they have the power to deliver the message because God is protecting them. He is guarding them. He is sustaining them for three and a half years. But at the end of the three and a half years, the Antichrist rises up and he puts them to death. Verse 7, 
when they have finished their testimony, God's work for them is done. The beast that comes up out of the abyss, that is the Antichrist, and we're going to talk more about him in the next couple of weeks. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And then there will be a global holiday. It's one of the craziest verses, I think, in the book of Revelation. It says, you know, as soon as these two are dead, they say, don't bury them. Just leave them in the street and let's start a new holiday, right? It's the new Festivus. Here we go, right? I mean, we're just, it, it's, it's, the new, it's the new celebration, uh, the Dead Witnesses Day, right? I mean, uh, or somebody called it, you know, like Diabolical Christmas. They, they begin to send each other cards and gifts and celebrate and they have parties and feasts. And then God gets the last word. As they're feasting and celebrating and eyes are upon them, which now we do have the technology for all eyes to be upon them at any point in time, live streaming the dead bodies who are laying in Jerusalem, all of a sudden they stand upright. And a voice that no one can deny calls to them, your work is done, come up here. And in that moment, the earth shakes. Jerusalem shakes. How do people respond? Verse 11, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Verse 13, and in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. So what happens in that moment? Some see this resurrection, they hear this voice, they understand that this is God who's doing this thing, and all that they experience is fear. As in chapter 6, when they say, you know, let us hide among the rocks from the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. They know why all these things are, are coming upon them, but still all that they do is fear, and they reject the message that's being given to them. Others see the re this resurrection, and they experience the earthquake, and it says they give glory to God. Because what happens at the end of this three-and-a-half-year period? The prophets have been prophesying. They've been declaring a message that's bittersweet. It's a message of judgment, but it's also a message of deliverance. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ is Messiah. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. You rejected him, but now you can receive him and be delivered. For three-and-a-half years, now at this midpoint, remember, Messiah has, or Antichrist has made a covenant, but at the end of the three-and-a-half years, he's going to break the covenant. This is part of the breaking of the covenant. He kills these prophets, and there is a revival in Jerusalem. Remember, according to Daniel 9, what is one of the primary purposes of the tribulation period? To bring Israel back to repentance, right? to bring judgment on the nations, and to bring Israel back to repentance. So as the earthquake happens and the resurrection happens, there's revival in Israel, and they begin to turn to the Lord. Right? They begin to turn to the Lord. It does remind me of uh, that sermon that Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost. Remember how it, it began with a sound of a, a violent rushing wind. We're told in Acts chapter 2, there's a violent rushing wind. And it's so startling that people from all over the city, they, they rush to this, this space and they're like, what's going on here? And they hear the apostles proclaiming a message that's bittersweet, but they hear it in their own languages. You know, these are Jewish people who, they speak Hebrew, they speak Aramaic, they speak this common language, but they're from different countries, and they begin to hear the gospel in their own languages. And then Peter stands up, and he's, he begins to speak in Aramaic, and he says to them, you crucified your Messiah. 
And it says they're, they're cut to the quick. Right? They experience conviction. They realize, wait, if God sent us his Messiah as he promised and we actually rejected him and killed him, then we are under judgment. And they're convicted of their sin. And they turn to Peter and they say, what must we do? What must we do to be saved? He says, you need to understand, this was all part of God's plan. You crucified him according to God's predetermined plan. It was God's plan so that he could pay the debt of your sin. That's why Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. So all that you have to do is believe and turn to him. And there was a mass revival. 3,000 people were saved in that day in Jerusalem. Well, that's going to happen again at the midpoint of the tribulation period after the prophets have been speaking and their message cannot be silenced until God says you're done. So what do we need to remember and learn and understand as messengers? Well, it's, the message is bittersweet. It's not always going to be received well, but it's truth. It's true truth. It's, it's the message of deliverance that people have to hear. It's judgment and deliverance. Second, God's message cannot be silenced. As long as God has called you to deliver the message, you cannot be stopped. He will sustain you. He will guide you. He will guard you. He will protect you. Third, God's message will prevail. Verse 15 then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, or his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who were and who, and who are, and because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged. And your wrath came, and the time for, came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So heaven gets noisy again, right? Uh, we had an interlude where all of heaven is silent. And now the myriads and myriads of angels, they're shouting again and they're declaring th this broad sweep of history. This is, where, this is where history is going. And the 24 elders fall down before the throne and they give us this preview uh, of the Son of God taking his throne, reigning over his creation. And they're shouting and they're singing and they're proclaiming and they're worshiping. And all of heaven is declaring, this is the end of the story. This is where it's going, and it's coming quickly. This will happen. God's kingdom cannot be stopped. God's gospel will prevail. And every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship him forever and ever and ever. I love these verses in Isaiah chapter 55. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. My word cannot be stopped. My message will always prevail. And I think what's most remarkable to me, in a sense, just unexpected in this section is what happens in verse 19. It says, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. 
And the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great, great hailstorm. Why, why now does, does John get this vision that actually the temple opens up and he, and he peers into heaven, right? We've, we've moved from scenes upon earth to scenes in heaven, scenes upon earth to scenes specifically in Jerusalem, and now we're moving from a scene in heaven specifically into the very throne room of God. I think it's this. The earthly temple is being trampled. The Antichrist is, has broken his covenant. And we're told in Daniel that what actually happens is he goes into the Holy of Holies and he sets himself up as a god to be worshipped. We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. So the temple on earth is being trampled, but the temple in heaven is secure. God's kingdom will prevail. God's message cannot be silenced. It cannot be stopped. Now, I think there are a lot of very practical applications for us from this passage. One of them is this. God's message must be proclaimed. God has, has, has chosen a strategy. You see, in, see it in the book of Revelation. Uh, angels are his messengers, and then John is his messenger, and then the two witnesses, they're his messengers, and then the 144,000, they're his messengers, and he has said to us as the church, uh, while you wait to be raptured, this is your calling. I want you to be my messengers. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. The book of Revelation isn't given to us to confuse us. I don't know if you, you noticed we, we read through it, but I didn't stop and talk about it. Uh, right in the beginning of chapter 10, there are these, these peals of thunder. Right? There's a voice, but it's peals of thunder. John picks up his pen, he starts to write, and God says to him, no, 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 don't write that down. You're the only one who gets to hear that. That is, there are, there are mysteries that God hasn't revealed yet. And in fact, as all of this begins to unfold, no matter how deeply we study it, we're going to be surprised. Right? We're going to be surprised. But we're given a lot we're not given this message from Revelation so that we would simply be confused, but so that we would see that God's kingdom will come, that God has a plan, that he is executing his plan, that his plan cannot be stopped, so that we would have confidence that the message that we deliver to people, yeah, it's bittersweet and there will be some who resist it, but it's true truth. They need to hear it. And this is the purpose for which we live. No matter what your particular job or vocation this is the purpose for which we live. To declare the message of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will prevail. Jesus will rule over tribe and tongue and people and nation. And right now he's given us the privilege to enter into drawing people into his kingdom. Will you give yourself completely to that cause? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be distracted by lesser visions for our lives. Instead, Father, I pray that we would see our families, husbands, wives, children, brothers, sisters, parents, all of these relationships you've given us as an opportunity in which we can declare the message of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would see our jobs, our coworkers, this is an opportunity using the, our gifts and our talents, our passions, our professions, the things that you've made us good at and love to do, that these are a gift from you so that we can proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, that we would see our homes, the neighborhoods that we live in, the neighbors that surround us, this context that you placed us in, in this point in time in history, 
It's an opportunity for us to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that, that we would not shrink back in fear, but instead we'd have courage and boldness. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus Christ did not pull back in fear. Instead, he went boldly to the cross so that we could have life. Pray that you'd make us courageous messengers of his gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.